Good evening, and welcome to Nighty Night with Rabia Chaudhary. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lubell, the show's producer. Tonight's episode, we continue our story behind the story series, where Rabia sits down with true crime expert Sarah Callen. Please enjoy. Hi, and welcome back to Nighty Night, listeners. This is our special series on the stories behind the stories. And as always, I have a really exciting guest this week joining me to talk about one of our cases that inspired an episode. In fact, an episode that she herself wrote. One thing I want to address before we get started and I introduce my guest is that I've gotten a number of messages from folks asking when we are going to get back to our traditional nighty night narrated stories. And I'm excited to let you know we will have a slate of them this fall beginning in September. So stay tuned and stay subscribed for those. But until then, we're going to continue to inform you and slightly frighten you with these true life tales of real life monsters. All right. So this week, I'm really excited to welcome a dear friend friend of mine and our special guest, Sarah Kalin. Let me tell you a little bit about Sarah before I welcome her on the show. Sarah is a former police officer and sex crimes detective with a decade of service in federal and municipal law enforcement agencies. Right now, Sarah is currently serving as a civilian special investigator for the Mobile County Alabama Sheriff's Office Major Crime Squad, and she's leading the investigation into several cold case homicides. She's also a team investigator for the Cold Case Foundation, the nation's premier nonprofit investigative consultancy group that was founded and led by the FBI's original BSU profilers and was inducted this year as an investigative member of the internationally renowned Vidoc Society. And if our listeners are really paying attention, you'll know that Sarah has written two Nighty Night episodes for us, two of my favorites, by the way, Schrodinger's Beast and The Little Hairs. So, Sarah, welcome <laughs> to the show. Thank you, Rabia. That was a very generous introduction. Oh, but I'm not done. There's so much more you've done. <laughs> <laughs> We've been at it a long time. Well, yes, you have. And uh, your experience is incredibly deep. And I want to let folks know how you and I got to know one another, because I think that's an important part of the story, too. I think we were both following each other on social media. And then Sarah reached out to me. Was it last year, Sarah? Or two years ago now? No, it was last year. Can you believe that? It It was last spring, late last spring. In the spring of 2021, right, Sarah reached out to me because at that time, Sarah had become a founding member of this amazing new project. It's a collaborative research study group that brings together Boston University, the University of Maryland, and Johns Hopkins. And it basically brings together folks from all kinds of backgrounds, law enforcement agencies, civilian experts, bring them together to help solve cold cases and examine like, you know, cases that are brought to them. When Sarah reached out to me, she asked me if I would present on Adnan Sayed's case, which I did. Sarah hinted a little bit about uh, the conversations we've had. I didn't get to finish the story, although, although we kind of formally met through this presentation I gave to this group last year. Immediately afterwards, I asked Sarah if she would join me in investigating a case for Undisclosed, which happened to be the final season that I produced for Undisclosed last year. And so we got together a couple of times in New Hampshire and spent days and days and days stuck in a car together, um, but just chatting and chatting and chatting and learning so much about how she does her work and, and why she's so good at it. 
And then very recently, we've also done our very first public uh, speaking engagement together. In fact, a corporate event <laughs> about the lesson, lessons of tr- that we've have, we, we are able to share lessons in leadership from working in true crime in Waco, Texas. So that was really exciting. And I got to hear a bit, a bit of her background. But one thing you didn't mention, Sarah, right now is that when you were so young and you had this terrifying fear of Ted Bundy, you and all these other students at your age. Yeah. Yeah. Sarah shared that they found out that the night before his execution, a teacher had spent the evening with him who had to be a minister. And when he returned to school, Sarah, people had all kinds of questions, but you had one question. Can you share with us what that question was uh, with that, that you asked that teacher? Yeah. Well, I, you know, it was, like I said, he, Ted Bundy was the boogeyman of my childhood. You know, he had, he was at Rayford prison, which was, you know, 20 miles from my home. And he'd sort of been this figure looming large over, over all of our childhoods. And so it was my freshman year of high school, January of my freshman year of high school, when, when Bundy was executed by the state of Florida. And when we came to school that morning, I got to third period and discovered that Mr. Lawrence wasn't there. And we, you know, didn't think anything of it. We had a substitute. And before the end of the day, word had circulated that Mr. Lawrence, who we all knew was a Methodist minister, kind of in addition to being a teacher, was out of school because he had been with Bundy all night leading up to the execution and had sort of taken additional, you know, kind of confession, kind of praying and stuff like that. And so when he came back, there was this kind of mini revolution in the class and everybody said, we're not going to let you start teaching again until you answer our questions. And I found person after person asked a variation on the same question, and that was, why would you do that? And he kind of answered the same thing over and over again, which is, you know, he believed he was called to God to do that, and, and this was his his role. I got really annoyed because nobody was asking the question that I thought really mattered, and so I finally asked, why is he like that? And he didn't really have an answer. I think at that time with his, you know, religious teaching and stuff, he sort of felt that you know, that he had strayed from God's path or, or, or whatever the explanation was, but it wasn't satisfactory to me. I was, uh, gosh, 14 at that time. And I've been asking that question. Why is he like that? Why are they like that really ever since? And I'm 47 now. So I've been doing, I've been asking and trying to get to the bottom of that question for, you know, for as long as I can remember now. If you're enjoying Nighty Night, bedtime stories to keep you awake, we would really appreciate it if you would follow us and leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out. Thank you. I got to say, this story, and again, the, the narrative story that we aired on Nighty Night, I guess it was last year now, was called The Little Hairs, written by Sarah Kalin. <laughs> and Sarah, when you first told me, I remember, because I, I, I said, oh, yeah, you know, it would be great. We're looking for writers for Nighty Night. And you're like, oh, yeah, I, I, I like to write, and I used to write, and I, I have a couple of great stories. And I'm like, yeah, I want to hear them. And when you first told me about this, it just, like the hair on my body just stood up. So, and it's, it's, I think it's one of the episodes that we've gotten some of the most amazing feedback on. Like it really, oh. really terrifies people. And it was so well written. So thank you for that. But thank I want you. you to briefly tell us um, about this experience. And then we're going to talk about the man at the heart of this experience. Yeah. Okay. Well, so for the people who listened to the story, the protagonist in the story, it's told essentially first person from a young woman who works in professional theater, which is actually what I did before I went into law enforcement. And she decides to go on sort of a solo hike and camping trip and she encounters this man and she kind of ignores all of her own instincts about him potentially being dangerous and instead chooses to kind of go the path of being polite of not offending him and stuff and and as such if you've listened to the story sets herself up for you know a, a deadly encounter essentially 
So it, it is very, it's very closely based on what really happened. The significant difference was, you know, the character in the story was a working theater professional, you know, had a little bit of like, you know, martial arts training and that was kind of it. In real life, I had already completed my time at the Federal Police Academy and was beginning work with the National Park Service. And I was going out to Ohio. I had to be out in Ohio. I live in Philadelphia now, and I did then as well. I was traveling out to Ohio for additional training, law enforcement training and firearms training. And I, you know, like the character in the story, decided to take a little vacation in the middle of it and do some hiking, which I used to like to do by myself, which kind of seems crazy to me now. But I did. I packed up this little pup tent and went into the Wayne National Forest. And the first night that I was there, you know, a little different from the story. I didn't I didn't spend the evening drinking beers with a guy. But the first night that I was there, I got my tent set up and I decided, you know, I was kind of bored. I didn't have anything to do at that point and dark was coming. And I decided to drive into a nearby town and maybe go see a movie or go get a book at a bookstore. And when I had been coming into the campground, which was exactly as I described it in the story, so I, I told sort of, you know, the, re the real story of the campground and where my site was. As I was coming in, there was nobody in the first site, and there was in, in the second site, kind of set back off, this little pop-up camper that looked very dark, and there was nobody with it. And something almost immediately registered as wrong with the setup at that campsite, but I kind of ignored that. I went to the next site, set up my tent, and decided to drive into town. And as I was leaving, there was somebody now at the first site. There had not been when I'd gotten there a few hours earlier. And as I was driving out, he was a kind of 50-year-old man, 50s, early 60s, sitting at this picnic table and smoking a cigarette. And he had like a, a, just a tarp strung between the picnic table and his motorcycle. And there was, uh, you know, a sleeping bag just tossed underneath the tarp. And we kind of made eye contact as my car was moving very slowly because my car was not built for the terrain. And I thought, I, I just had that sense that there was something wrong with this guy. There was something deeply, deeply frightening about just the eye contact that I had with him. And he was sitting there looking at me, kind of holding my gaze and smoking a cigarette. And so I just kind of shook it off and I left and I went into town and I got dinner and I got a book. And, and when I came back in, it was a little after nine. And so it was very, very dark. And as I was coming back into the campground, as I approached campsite one, my headlights kind of shot up as I went over like a big bump and my headlights hit the picnic table and he was sitting in the exact same spot, in the exact same position, still smoking. And it appeared like looking in through the windshield, it was harder to see, you know, obviously at night, but it was very chilling. And everything in me said that this, there's a problem. And I had this sense, I was like, oh my God, what if something happened to whoever was in that other campsite? And so I told myself though, that I was being ridiculous. And I said, this is just a product of you being a woman alone in a campground in the national forest. And I decided I was overreacting. I was just sort of behaving or feeling this way because I was a woman alone in the forest late at night. And so I parked my car and I thought, oh my God, I have to pee so bad. I, I, I have to go do this before I can go to sleep. 
And I did sort of exactly as the story says, you know, it was this little one person tent. So there's like a little pouch that hangs down from the roof as it were. And in that pouch were my keys, a folding knife, a buck knife, a canister of mace and my wallet. And that was all there. And I sort of, I had put them there as something I always do, which is like, always be prepared to run, right? In any situation, you should be prepared to run. This is kind of, unfortunately, how I live life and how I advise others to. So I took my knife and my mace out of the pouch and I ran full speed to the bathroom, though in real life, the bathroom that I chose was not the main campground one, but a little outhouse that was kind of set back in between the first three campsites. And when I was in there and when I came out, I had this overwhelming sense that I was too close to him. It was too dark. I couldn't see. I was, I was genuinely terrified. And I ran back to my tent and I thought, you know, I just kept telling myself, you're being ridiculous. This is ridiculous. You are a federally trained police officer. You are quite capable of taking care of yourself. Stop being such a coward about this. And I laid down in my sleeping bag and I kept trying to go to sleep. And I was just drifting off. And it was the voice I describe in the story is that of a, you know, a jujitsu instructor. In real life, it was a man named Keith Brown, who was one of my firearms instructors at my original academy. And he had a lot of these sort of war stories. And I remember him saying to us once at the range, he said, you know, no matter what you're doing, no matter what kind of scene you're on, When the little hairs on the back of your neck stand up, you must listen to them. He said, this is literally millions of years of evolution saving you. You have to react to that and you have to trust that. And so, you know, and and he was sort of talking about it in the law enforcement capacity or if you're, you know, doing a search of a home or whatever. But his voice just came pounding into my head and said, when the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, listen to them. And I shot upright and I grabbed the stuff out of the pouch. I grabbed my keys, my knife, my mace and my wallet. I ran full speed to my car. And it was, I mean, I felt so ridiculous because I got in and like locked the doors real fast, tore off out of there. And I went to the nearest town and got a hotel room with what I had on me. And... I just, I remember, you know, when I got into like the light and the comfort of a hotel, I thought, what an idiot, like, this is ridiculous. You've, you've gone camping before alone. You've gone hiking before alone. Why would you react this way? And I called a girlfriend and and she said, no, 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 no. I think you definitely did the right thing. You absolutely, one, he sounds creepy. And two, you know, you have to listen to that instinct and never, never ignore it. And so it just sort of became this kind of scary story that I would share sometimes. And then not too, too long ago, like probably in the last decade, I stumbled across, you know, in some research I was doing on a different case, I was looking for another serial killer I had heard of who operated in in certain parts, but I couldn't remember his name. And so when I just Googled in certain terms, Gary Hilton popped up. And when he popped up, I just, it was just this flood of adrenaline. And, you know, and I'm the first to say that eyewitness testimony is the least reliable testimony. I do believe that the mind can play tricks. Our memory can play tricks on us. I have been for my entire life blessed or cursed with an eidetic memory. So I tend to remember things in visual images and, and like little movies. 
And so I think with eidetic memory, you can rely on it a little more than other kinds. I don't say, you know, 100% that this was who this person was, but as I started digging and doing, you know, looking into his timeline and stuff, and then just coupled with the way I responded in the moment, I wasn't looking for somebody who, you know what I mean? I wasn't looking for the guy I had encountered in the park when I came across that picture, jumped, you know, the picture just flashed at me and it was those eyes sitting at the picnic table staring at me. I remember you telling me about those eyes. Yeah. And I've never felt anything quite like it. And you know, whether or not it was Gary Hilton, I do believe I did the right thing. And I would encourage anybody, especially women to do the same thing in that moment, if you feel that way, and maybe not to wait several hours to do it. You know, I'm, I pushed it off for too long, but I'm also, you know, I wouldn't go to court on it, but I'm pretty sure it was him. And the more I've Have you ever at, gone and looked up like, 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 uh, like video of him and other kinds of images? To see I have if, looked like, up other know. images and I've, uh, so I've been afraid, you know, now I'm a little worried that all the images I've seen of him have been kind of supplanted right. into the memory. Um, so I sort of have to trust those, those first initial responses. And I can always find the one photo of him that is, you know, that comes up sometimes if you, if you Google, there is one photo of him in particular that was the one I saw that just was so jarring, you know, so very much this man who I had seen in in Burr Oak in the Wayne National Forest. But, you know, I poke around on him occasionally. I'd actually, I would love to talk to the investigators who have his case files. So, you know, sort of the punchline of the whole thing is that when he was ultimately convicted and sentenced to death, he was housed at Rayford Prison, again, 20 miles from my childhood home, <laughs> you know, just outside Gainesville. So, you know, I'd love to speak with the investigators who have case files on him, who have perhaps some of the timeline tracking on him. I, I've looked at the Florida Gulf Coast Radford University study. There's like a, a multi-university study on serial killers that has just this incredible database of information. And so I'm fortunate enough to have access to that database. And I've looked at his information in there. He is one of the people who's cataloged in there. And his timeline certainly allows for this to have been him. Um, it doesn't exclude him. So what year was this when you encountered, when you had this encounter in the, in the forest? This was 99. This would have been the summer of 1999, um, okay. which again, you know, I didn't, there were, I didn't have a cell phone. I, I didn't get my first cell phone for another couple of years after that. I almost want to have an entire conversation about the idea of women camping alone. I mean, look, as a brown person, as an immigrant, like camping is not a thing we do. It's like the mindset of our parents is like, we didn't struggle to come here to then go stay in the woods. <laughs> like that's not fun for us. <laughs> it's just not. And as an adult, I still like, it's just not a thing that I ever thought about, but also I, like, there, it, it is also terrifying to me because you are out in the woods. It is dark and forget serial killers, which, you know, maybe statistically you might low chance of running into, but high chances of all kinds of animals and scorpions and snakes and insects and other things I don't want to deal with. I mean, I just, the appeal has never been there for me. And I, I think of a lot of people of my background, but let's get to Hilton now, because I want to talk about what we do know for sure about him, which is like the crimes he was actually convicted of. Um, and we're going to start by um, going back to 2007, October 21st, 2007, and a series of murders and disappearances that actually took place in uh, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So October 21st, 2007, there is an elderly couple, John and Irene Bryant, ages 80 and 84, who were experienced hikers, traveled a lot, went hiking a lot, and they go missing in North Carolina in the Pisgah National Forest. So this is in October. 
A few weeks later, it's like early November, Irene's body is found and it's off of a trail not too far from when they went missing. She had died from blows to her head and her right forearm had been cut off, which I found really strange until I think I kind of continue to read and, and research and understand like maybe why that would have happened. But her husband wasn't found with her and he wasn't in fact found. I'll be curious to get your take on that. I'll tell you what I, what yeah. I think, but this is also not my, like, you know, this is not my forte. This is not what I do. This is what you do. Like, you know, the, the why's behind it. Yeah. You know, I love, I love input from, from other experts. So. Yeah. Let me just say that. So her husband's remains, John's remains were found a few months later in February, 2008. And he had been killed in a very different way. He'd been shot in the head in a different national forest, in Nantahala National Forest. And but the thing is, the day after they went missing, their ATM card had been used, not like in Tennessee across state lines. Now, when I read that, I thought maybe her form was cut off because like her like for finger for to use her fingerprints to like unlock something. Like I just I couldn't that, that's not the first thing that like jumped out at me. Maybe her fingerprint a fingerprint unlocked a cell because it's 2007. So there are cell phones. Maybe it unlocked a cell phone, but I also don't know if that tracks with cell phone technology. But what jumps out to you with this? Well what jumped out at me to it is that he had mutilation and decapitation with some of his other victims as well. And so well, hold on now. At this point, we don't know that, right? Like this point, 2007, okay, yeah. October, this is the first set of victims and yeah. you're the investigator and you've come across a body that's missing his right forearm. What so does that mean to you? What that means to me, um, particularly because it was the female of the pair who the, the mutilation took place on it feels to me that the male was just killed essentially to get him out of the picture and the female for whatever reason. And again, there, there, you know, we refer to these things. We refer to a lot of these types of homicides as sexual homicide, even if there is not an obvious sex act involved. And that is because there is something about other things that happened at the scene that are stimulating or sexually gratifying to the offender. And so even just looking at the single case, I actually, I wouldn't jump to fingerprint use because a, a whole forearm is more trouble than just a hand or a, or a finger. Fair enough. Fair enough. And you know what I mean? And it feels like there is a reason that he in particular is either fascinated by or repulsed by either that area of the body. Again, like these people are operating on a different plane, right? So we have to not think about them in terms of what would make us tick. We have to, this is why it, it takes years of studying them and studying as many as possible before you can kind of begin to have, it's, it's not a gut instinct. I hate that expression because that sounds very irresponsible, but to have a sort of like, okay, here's where I think this is going to go. And part of that is stepping out of, I would like to believe a sane person's brain with a conscience, right? And start thinking more in terms of the way these guys think. So I would say there is something either about the forearm or something, or perhaps she had a mark there or a scar or a mole that either fascinated him or repulsed him in some way, right? So if she had a birthmark on her arm, let's say in the same place that his mother did, I mean, that sounds really trite and obvious. And I am being a little bit broad, obviously, but it's also often the case, right, that it is somehow connected either to an early love or to a parental figure or a family figure. So I would actually think it's got more to do with his fascination and that that's where, because mutilation is such a specific, it's such a specific thing and it takes such 
a very niche, like small percentage, even among serial killers, even among other like real psychopaths, even within those groups, the the mutilators are are like kind of a small percentage. Oh wow! Okay. And so when you have that, I mean, and it could just be that there was some sort of accident involved as well. You know mm. what I mean? But right. Um, if that was the first scene that I came upon and the husband was missing and then found dead and I was dealing with a mutilated female, I would believe that she had been the target of whatever either um, sexual impulse or rage he was feeling at the time when he committed the act. Well, before they found the husband's body in 2008, February 2008, which is like again months after they went missing, December 15th of 2007, authorities found uh, another severely mutilated body that was in fact decapitated and this happened to be Cheryl Hodges Dunlap. Cheryl went missing on December 1st, 2007 which is about, I mean it was like about six weeks after the Bryants mm-hmm. had gone missing mm-hmm. and she was 46 years old, a nurse Sunday school teacher who was I guess vi- visiting this geological area from Florida, she's reported missing around December 3rd because she didn't come like come back to work. She didn't come back to her church and her roommate was like, I haven't seen her. So a couple weeks go by and then her car's found nearby. It's got a puncture and a tire. And then her body's found on December 15th in another national forest that's actually in Florida and is found by a hunter who saw these buzzards, right? And goes to investigate. She had been strangled, beaten, and shot, okay, but her hands and head had been cut off, and then those items had been burned in a campsite, which uh, maybe to hide evidence or hide her identity, I'm assuming. And then her ATM was used between December 2nd and December 5th to withdraw money from a local bank. So so this this happens like within six weeks of, of yeah. the Bryants going missing and they had already found Irene Bryant's body, but not John's. But, you know, this is like very close in time, very close in proximity and kind of terrifying. Yeah. And then like a month later, exactly to the day, January 1st, another woman goes missing, Meredith Hope Emerson, who's 24. And she goes hiking on this trail in um, Vogel State Park with her dog and never comes home. Apparently a number of people had reported later when it was still a missing persons case that, you know, they had seen somebody matching her description, hiking with an older person and a dog. And then a number of her items were found like not far from the trail, like a dog leash, her water bottle, and strangely enough, a police style baton. So police put out like a search. Now, here's what happens, and this is actually how Gary Hilton gets caught. They put out this call, a description of this older man, and they get a lead. A man named John Tabor calls into the police and says, I think I know this guy, and I think his name is Gary Hilton, which then takes us back to like, okay, well, who's Gary Hilton? Why does this guy named John know him? So the person he's calling about, um, again, this guy's name's Gary Hilton, he was born in 1946. And the reason John Tabor knows him is because John and Gary knew each other for at least about around 10 years at that time. So Gary lived in Northern Georgia and like, like he had kind of like been in that area for around 30 years. That's where he was like born and he was raised. He had a bunch of run-ins with the law, but like no violent crimes, right? Yeah. It's like marijuana, theft. DUI, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, things like that. But what happened is like, so John Tabor was a, a lawyer, but he also owned a company that did apparently construction and things like that. And 
you know, so Gary started working for Don and, you know, I guess they became friends. At some point he's like living on his property. But uh, over the years, there were reports that like there were all these landlords that got rid of Gary over the t- over time because he would creep people out or mistreat people. A lot of women complained that like they creeped them out. And one woman reported that he had she had seen him in a park with her dogs and he had threatened her. And then eventually um, this woman complained to John that, listen, I know you sent this guy, Gary, to do some work on my house, but I don't want him around because his work's not good. But also he really freaks me out. So in September 2007, like right before these series of disappearances and murders take place, Gary gets kicked out of John's property. And John tells the police that Gary had demanded $10,000 from him, had threatened him, had threatened his family. And so, like, he got rid of him and said, and he was scared of him. He's like, I don't want him to know where I am. I don't want him to know that I've called in. And so, you know, he calls in and says, I think this might be your guy. Now, I'm sure you did. Did you do research? Like, when you saw this picture of Gary Hilton, were you like, I got to dig it? Like, what did you find? Yeah. So I found a lot of the same stuff that you did. I knew that he had worked for Tabor for 10 years. I knew that Tabor had this sighting company um, is, is what I found that that Gary Hilton did for him. I didn't find that about customers complaining about him, but obviously I'm I'm not surprised at all to hear that. What I did find, so what my brain does is now that because I started looking into him after he'd been captured, I wanted to see again what were the steps leading up to this sort of obvious explosion of behavior. And like you said, I was surprised that not very many of the obvious markers were there. So the criminal history, as you said, was low level or or certainly not interpersonal violence related stuff. However, I did find that when he was still in high school, he shot his stepfather and the stepfather was not killed, but mom basically kicked him out of the house and would only let him kind of live there during school time. So the whole family was afraid of him. Um, he was Wait, never. He, he didn't serve any time for that? He, he did not. The stepdad did not die from his injuries, and the family decided not to, you know, address it with authorities. And this would have been in the late 50s, early, early 60s, 60s yeah. or so. And that is a pretty good flag. Danny Rowling, the serial killer who murdered the students in Gainesville, the, the, the Gainesville student murder. He also had an incident where he shot a parent as a teenager. We saw that with Ed Kemper as well. So I was like, oh, okay, so we've got one here. You know, he was discharged from the military. He got an early discharge from the military, which is another kind of common marker that we see that he didn't finish out his time for whatever reason. Without his military records, we don't know what the reason was. But in investigating some of these guys, I've seen that a number of times. It's pretty common. He was also married four times in relatively quick succession, which makes me wonder if during that time, now we're not seeing the obvious marker of violence against women, right, in his criminal record. But if he's married in the 60s and 70s and early 80s, we might not have seen that. There may have been significant examples of domestic violence and escalating domestic violence or sexual assault within the marriage marriages that, that just simply were never reported or never recorded um, or he was never. And is that typical of the pattern like you see in escalation with serial killers? Yes. Well, some some sort of violence against women is just, you know, is really common. And 
In much the same way that we see domestic violence as a predictor of mass violence now, of mass shooting, you can, um, I mean, you can set your watch to it. You will find I was just thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. and this is something, I mean, I'm glad to see a lot of sources are starting to talk about this. I've been screaming this on Twitter for years, and I'm glad that other people are starting to really talk about it a lot. But it's also true of serial predation because what we tend to see are there are behaviors that would be classified as domestic violence. And so if the victim, if the, the partner was fortunate enough to find, you know, a police agency willing to take a report or, or a court system willing to allow her to press charges and stuff, we would tend to see things that we now understand as those steps up the ladder. So they would be sexual assault within the relationship or strangulation within the relationship. And these are sort of some of the practice markers that we see that with a lot of them, we will see in their criminal record as well, right? So we will see like the B&Es and stuff with strangers. So they're committing these acts on strangers before they escalate to serial homicide. But even before they begin with strangers, we usually see some sort of a practice element, a trial period with a partner or a family member. And so seeing all these marriages in quick succession, like one right after the other, I think one even kind of overlapped because he brought a woman back from Germany who he had married over there and then got married here. I don't know. It was weird. So I I would... And these kinds of red flags are the kinds of things I'm assuming law enforcement looks at when they're basically looking for suspects, right? I mean, it's, it's not so much that like if an agency has a file and this person's got all this history that they're like, well, we got to keep an eye on him because this person's going to turn into a serial killer, right? Right. Yeah. We're not minority right. report. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So John Tabor calls in and at this point, you know, you've got numerous bodies being found, although Meredith Emerson's body has not yet been found, but they were aware of this case, the investigators who were looking both at Emerson's case, um, Meredith Emerson, and also the Bryant's cases. And so now they have like a lead, right? And they also know that Emerson, she was seen like hiking with this older man and he was described as somebody with a yellow jacket, apparently. And I thought about this when I read that, you know, the Bryant's and the other victim, Dunlap, like their ATM's card been used. And I was like, oh, what about like ATM footage? Well, they did capture some ATM footage. They could I clearly identify who was in it, which I just, I'm always so frustrated when I'm like, you've got a camera like pointing right at your face. There's CCTV cameras everywhere, but like, why are there all these cameras everywhere? They don't ever clearly capture like a suspect's identity. Yeah. But anyhow, this person in a yellow jacket had been seen on video using the Brian's ATM card about an hour from where Emerson had disappeared. So investigators are making all these connections. And then Emerson's dog, who she'd been hiking with, was found in a local grocery store alive. And when they finally arrested Hilton, he actually said that he could not bring himself to kill the dog. And he literally, this is the quote, it was hard. You got to remember we had spent several good days together. So he did confess to killing Meredith Emerson, but I... I kind of got stuck on this quote. Like, yeah. can you explain this to me? How it's difficult for him to kill a dog, but not to kill these human beings? There, I mean, without knowing a whole lot more or doing a real in-depth interview with him, it's it's difficult to know exactly what might predicate it. But he's certainly not the first serial killer to have no conscience, no remorse whatsoever about taking the life of a human, who he also obviously spent several good days together with, I get, you know yeah. what I mean, if they were hiking, but be reluctant to do the same thing to an animal. And it could be that, you know, in his childhood that there was a dog who brought him a lot of comfort or something like that. Like, sociopathy and psychopathy are not 
zero or a hundred, like so much else in psychology and in mental health, there is a spectrum. And so there are psychopaths. It's not that they don't love anything. It's not that they're incapable of it. It's that the love revolves around their needs. And so if an animal is providing something that this person needs, whatever that might be in that person's mind, they may have love and compassion for it in the same way that we... Well, Hilton Kelt, he had his own dog. He kept a dog. Yes, he did. He had his own... Exactly. And so there is a sort of a, you know, a love factor, which is very, very different, you know, from how typical humans who are not sociopaths or psychopaths operate in the world where even though we don't love every single person we encounter in a day, there is a low level hum of like not wanting to hurt people unnecessarily, right? That I think most people operate through their day with. And, you know, for him, it just may be that that registers with animals and, and, and humans just don't make it onto that scale. Again, for whatever reason, I don't know enough about his childhood to know if there was abuse, if there was head trauma, if he was simply, you know, wired really, really badly right from from the beginning. I do know that he is of the right age. I mean, he was operating during that time or he was of an age where he would have been operating during that time that we refer to as the golden era, uh, the golden years of, of serial killers. So he Wait, would have why, come- why is that called the golden years of serial killers? I haven't heard this term before. Oh, you've not? Oh my gosh, Rabia. Oh my God. This is another podcast. I have a lot to learn, Sarah. I know. Oh my God. I'm so excited. So we kind of generally refer to the 70s, 80s, and 90s as, as the, you know, tongue in cheek. It is not meant to take anything lightly or to make light of it, but it's the to golden minimize, era. Yeah. Right. In, in, we use this term because there were so many of them. And some of it is, you know, it's, it's a little like when we discuss autism now, right? So the question is, is it more prevalent or just we recognize it better and so we see it, right? And so because so many of the studies were being done in the 70s and 80s and 90s, some people have, have sort of felt like, well, we were just more aware of it. I don't actually subscribe to that. I think that we did those studies because we were seeing so much of it and because there was a need. And they have always existed and they will always exist. But that 30-year window did give us a lot of serial killers. And I think a lot of it is tied to stuff. And again, you know, we won't go too into the weeds and do this here tonight. But a lot of it is tied to the generational influences that those men came up with. So they're sort of like the children of World War II vets primarily, or, or sorry, not that, but, but people of that age, right? So that they, were, they yeah. tend to have been born, yeah, in the in the 40s. It's, some of them might be a little bit older than that, but they're still coming of age essentially during the same time, during the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And he's, he's in that window. Yeah, no, so I mean, like, I want to go down this rabbit hole too. It's like, so oh, what? Yeah. So what, so what if they were raised hole, yeah. in that, like, yeah. you know, but okay, we'll save that for another time. We yeah. get, we'll get back to Hilton now. But um, so Hilton was, was arrested on January 4th, 2008. Like within days, he confesses to these murderers. And he says that with Emerson, who was the latest victim, that he had been hiking with her for a bit. And then he kind of let her go off on her own. Then he waited for her to come back on the same trail ambushed her and then he kept her um with him for three days in his van tried to get cash using her atm card but she kept giving him the wrong pins and every time he would use the pin it would come up as a failed transaction what's interesting is like the banks never pinged it and they never reported it it was just like at different atms it you know which to me should have happened probably especially in 
2007. This is not like, yeah. you know, that long ago. Yeah. And then finally he just killed her. So he tied her to a tree and he beat her um, and then he eventually decapitated her, but they hadn't found her body yet. So he made a deal with prosecutors that he would tell them where the body was in exchange for them taking the death penalty off the table. And he did that. So he took investigators to another national forest and identified where her body was. He then gets extradited. So, um, you know, he pleads guilty. Yeah, that was that was a North Carolina one, right? This one, yes, that's right. Or this a Georgia one. I was going to say that, yeah, he's, he's all over the Appalachian Trail. The, yeah. Right. So he's, he's, been con- he's gotten life sentences in both North Carolina and Georgia, I believe. Um, but then he gets, a, he gets a death sentence in yeah. Florida. Of course. So he's extra, yeah, he's, well, yeah. He's extradited to Florida for the Dunlap murder. And, and Dunlap, that's the murder of the 46-year-old lady who was a Sunday school teacher. And so they find all these different pieces of evidence that connect him to the murder, including, like, her possessions in his van. And so that seals his fate for there. And then he also, like I said, he has confessed and he's rambling. And he says to, you know, as we're trying to figure out like why people like this do what he did, he said that he actually started hunting in September of 2007. So what he, what he's trying to tell investigators is like before September, 2007, I didn't do this stuff, mm-hmm. but it feels very unlikely that he's going to go from like mm-hmm. zero yeah. to a hundred at the age of 60. Yeah. No, right. Didn't right. So that's that way. really <laughs> unlikely. Didn't happen that way. Yeah. 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 And, I, I, it, It also feels like um, the rapidity with which those homicides happen. Every month, every uh, month. Exactly. That feels, you know, we, I I talk a lot about this too, the sort of the serial killer cycle is kind of, you know, it looks a little like the recycling symbol where it's the, you know, the three arrows and they kind of go in a circle and there is, you know, there's the, the buildup towards an explosion of behavior. There's a precipitating factor, which then explodes and there's violence. And then there is this cool down period. Um, now the significant difference between the recycling symbol, which is, you know, just sort of keeps going in an eternal loop on the same length of, of arrows the cycle that serial killers operate in tightens over time. So it's actually more of a spiral as these arrows come into each other. And what we tend to see is that much later in their careers, if they've not been caught, is when we begin to see that cycle tightening and then ultimately ending either in something like this where they're they're committing a bunch sort of right in a row or they go full spree, as we saw with Bundy, where there were just you know, a number of attacks all within a few hours and and they just have no control. So when we see that they make it to that age, when when he has gotten to his 60s and is only just now sort of coming unglued, the sort of decompensating that happens when they begin to spiral, it usually indicates that they were a fairly organized killer and they were fairly methodical and well thought out. But there are other factors with Hilton that make me think that's not the case, particularly that he obviously killed, he killed for the thrill, he killed for that compulsion, but he did it when he needed money. Like well, he's, I, That's what I was going to ask yeah, you. He, I so mean, like, that so... is, is much more of an impulse kill, but then it's tied in with this where he has a, you know, a compulsive side to it, which is why we see the exploratory behavior of the, of the mutilation and burning and stuff like that. Is that, I mean, it feels kind of uncommon because I don't know if I've heard before of a serial killer who... It, it almost seems like 
like robbery is the motive here, especially with two of his victims. And this is what happened with the first couple, the Bryants. So apparently in his, he confessed that he killed Irene Bryant first, and then he kept her husband alive mm-hmm. for like weeks, apparently, and took him on a joyride and trying to get him to use ATMs and get money out before he finally... Yeah, that's what I was going to say. He probably thought they had more money that he could milk out of the guy. So he kept him alive yeah. and then finally shot him. Yeah. So, I mean, the money aspect of it, getting that, I mean, that seems unusual to me, like in the span of serial kill stories I've read, which is, just seems like it's about the thrill of the kill yeah. or the psychopathy versus like, I yeah. actually need, I'm going to rob them. There there are some crossovers and I, I agree with you where I, I think that Hilton is a crossover. He sort of has, you know, one foot in both camps where he's killing for a more practical, not reasonable, but a more practical motive versus just the compulsion. But he's obviously engaging in compulsive behavior. He obviously enjoys aspects of it. In my mind, the very best example of that is Jeremy Jones, who a lot of people don't know his name, but he is regarded by, you know, criminal psychologists and by academics as as one of the most, you know, quote unquote, for lack of a better word, evil people to have ever lived that we know of. And he operated very, very intensely in both camps. He worked within organized crime. He worked within drug worlds. He worked as a hit enforcer. So he was he was killing people out of his job duties. And he also was an extremely violent sexual sadist who had some of his kills were done for the thrill and for sexual assault and were and were clearly brutal sexual homicides. And he, you know, they do exist. You're you're right that you don't hear a lot about them because usually it's going to be one or the other. But you know, I, I would I would also argue, like I said, when we talk about the cycle, um, the precipitating factor is often the behavior that sort of ignites the the spark that then sets off the explosive behavior. So as they've been building up to it, but there will be one little thing that sets them off. And a lot of times it's a change in life status. It's a firing or right. a wife leaving or a child's birthday. It could be, and again, this is all speculation without seeing the files or interviewing him, it could be that when he ran out of money, there is something in his psyche that that is a desperate enough moment or an intense enough moment when he is out of money, that that's actually a precipitating factor for him. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, and he and he's, has nowhere to live. Like, he suddenly becomes homeless. He has nowhere to live, right. And that that, it's not just that it's a need, but that it generates enough of that um, psychological trigger that it kicks off the, okay, I have to kill to get this itch out of my system. I've read before that I'm, maybe this is a theory or maybe it's for real that like, you know, serial killers, you know, usually they get caught when they're like caught in like the spiral right. end of their, like in that, that end of their serial killing career where they're, it's just out of control. It's com- like, it's compulsive. They're doing that. There's also an element of wanting to get caught. Do you believe that? Oh, no. <laughs> no. I mean, I, I, sure. I guess it's possible. All things are possible in the human condition, even in psychopathy. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. I'm sure that there were some that, that are, that are like that. I think at that point, when they're spiraling, when you think about Bundy at Chi Omega and Kimberly Leach and these actions in the end, it was a bloodbath. This is not somebody who was thinking on any level. And they certainly, I mean, Bundy tried to escape from Rayford twice after he had been, you know what I mean? After he was captured yeah. and sentenced to death. So He's it not was trying well to be. past yeah. that time period. Yeah, they, you know, there is no part that's like, please stop me. I can't stop my, you know, whatever. I, that's, that's to me, the stuff of stories. I think that paints too sympathetic a picture 
of people who are essentially operating as machines at that point. Well, I mean, I have to say that, you know, there's, I mean, so right now, you know, as we said, so he has a one life sentence. He, this man's still alive. He's alive. <laughs> he's on death row in Florida. He has one <laughs> life sentence in Georgia, one in North Carolina, and then he's a death sentence in Florida. But investigators do really believe that he's been tied to at least three or four other murders mm-hmm. as early as 1997, which is like, uh-huh. that, that's the time frame you're talking about in yep. your story. Yeah, when is, I saw that myself and, and my <laughs> stomach dropped when I saw that. Yeah, terrifying. And so in 97, what happened was in April of 97, the woman named Judy Smith had been in Philadelphia with her husband, who was there for a conference, but her body was found 600 miles away in this national forest in North Carolina. And at first investigators were like, well, maybe she got like abducted from Philly or somewhere close by and then taken. But when her body was found, it was like she was actually wearing hiking clothing. But so the 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 plan between her and her husband was like, he's going to go to attend his conference and she's just going to sightsee in Philly. But maybe she had plans to meet up with somebody else or just take off for a couple of days and go hiking. But 600 miles is quite a trek to pop out and come back. Which yeah, no, no, she certainly me. didn't pop out and come. She certainly didn't get 600 miles away in her hiking gear on her own volition. It may have been that now there are a number of hiking trails within the city of Philadelphia, within Fairmount Park, really fabulous hiking trails. I mean, you are, you're completely lost. You are in the woods in, you know, the largest inner city park in the world, Fairmount Park. And it may have been that while he was at a conference, she, you know, cause where, where those trails are, are also very close to these like old historical mansions that you can tour. Mm. I could very much see this as she was going to do some sightseeing and then go, you know, walk at, at Wissahickon Park or, or, you know, in Fairmount. Or it could be that she was going to take a day trip up to Delaware Water Gap or what. Like there are, you know, I mean, I always brag about how Philly is like the perfect location because we're an hour from the ocean and we're an hour from the mountains and, you know, we've got everything. But there is a lot of great hiking very close to here. And so we know, obviously, that this is where he likes to hunt so it could just be he happened to be there for something and, and, you know, and saw her in a park and while he was hunting or he came across her and just took advantage of the moment because he does feel more disorganized to me than somebody who, who stalks a particular victim for, you know, right. for a period of time. And then there is something else about whatever this park was down south that something in him needs it to be in the Appalachian Trail or needs it to be closer to home or he just likes this area and wants to have this and he knows the area he knows the area and he wants to have a beautiful moment that what he considers is a nice moment for him he wants to have it in a place that that means something to him well after other than that disappearance there are three others one in 2004 2005 2007 three other disappearances and murderers that investigators also believe are tied to him, but Hilton has not confessed to them and they are considered open cases. I'm not going to get into each one of them. One of the more fascinating ones was 2007, Michael Scott Lewis. His uh, remains were found dismembered in Florida, but uh, investigators were like, we don't know if it's Hilton or it could be this guy's girlfriend who also apparently was arrested for dismembering and murdering a previous boyfriend. So, you know, it might have been. Somebody That's always else. wild. Um, yeah, there was Charlie, there was a guy named Charlie Bryant down there too, who also cut off heads and hands. I thought about that one when we were, you know, talking about the Dunlap one. Oh. It was a, a guy in Florida who who did that. What's it like to have an encyclopedia uh, in your head full of serial killers, uh, Sarah, who could just like rattle them off? It's a little scary, but no, um, I don't know. I, guess I love I, that you won't watch horror movies. No, I won't watch horror movies, but I will watch true crime and I will watch documentaries and I will watch psychological thrillers. Like I live for that stuff. Let me ask you this. Would you do this? Would you reach out to somebody like Gary Hilton and say, hey, I want to understand what makes you tick? 
I would. I don't, I mean, sometimes I don't, I don't necessarily consider myself qualified enough to do that on a research angle. Like I don't have a PhD. I would like to get one one day, but I'm not there yet. I haven't quite had the time, you know? So in terms of interviewing him for like the value of education, the way that Dr. Burgess built those studies, I know, I know other people who I would urge them to do it first because I think they're wired to build that sort of of a database out of the information that he provides. So you mean like if I have a true crime podcast, I shouldn't just do it on my own? That's not enough of a qualification. The love of God, (laughs) please don't. But that being said, I would love to interview him about some of the cases he is potentially associated with. That, you know, to interview him in the capacity of a cold case homicide investigator, that I do believe I'm qualified to do and I do believe would lead to some some really interesting conversations and would allow me to have, uh, you know, like I said, everything I say today, I I do with the caveat of I've never seen the files. You know, I've never even been able to watch an interview with him. So I can only speculate based on what's available in the public realm. But if, you know, if we happen to have any investigators for whom the case Cases, you know, are uh, that are that are still potentially connected to him are like stashed away in their desk. And, you know, you want to consult. Well, you know, one of them is a Georgia case, uh, Patrice Andres. Uh, maybe uh, other official you're working with Georgia Wait, folks now. Patrice Andres is considered a, a potential victim of Hilton. Yeah, it is. It is. It has been raised. Yeah, no, I, I believe she was killed by Jeremy Jones, that guy that I just mentioned. So she's also on the Jeremy Jones list. That's I did not come across that. I'm having a moment right now. <laughs> Jeremy Jones, I have studied much more extensively. I've watched countless hours of interview footage. I work very closely with the investigators who were the ones to finally capture him after he eluded everybody, including the FBI. So, yeah, so no, I'm very, I'm much more familiar with his patterns and I'm you know, I'm not 100% on Patrice's case in Forsyth County, Georgia, but I'm, you know, I, I tend to defer to the investigators who know him best, and they are pretty damn certain. <laughs> well, it would be mind-blowing if that was a case that was eventually oh, handed to yeah, you. Yeah, no, no, I'm very... So you figure I want, out whether it's Jeremy Jones or Hilton, yeah. I want these cases. All right, well, we are going to have to wrap up now, but it has been, like, we could talk about this, you know. We do, we do. We're always texting each other about... Yeah, no, as soon documents. as we get off, we're going to talk about the golden <laughs> yeah. era, and I'm going to have to exactly. explain all this World War II stuff to you. Oh, now you have totally... And my thing is, I'm like, I don't have time, but I, I have to make the time to yeah. learn all about the golden era. Uh, but Sarah, where can folks find you online? Online, you can find me. I am at Kaylin Sarah, that's C-A-I-L-E-A-N-S-A-R-A-H, both Instagram and Twitter. That's the easiest place to find me online. Or you can find me on my website. So for my my public speaking events and stuff, it's just called speakingcrime.com. You can find me oh, there. Oh, yeah, we didn't talk about this. Sarah does amazing um, talks all over the country, really, in all kinds of venues where she just puts together this, like, I mean, just tell us a, a couple of shows like you have you've done recently so folks can get an idea. <laughs> well, I sort of describe what I do with those types of events. It's very different than what you and I do together in sort of a corporate arena. This is sort of like a cross between an academic lecture, a true crime podcast and a bunch of tipsy people at a bar talking. So basically <laughs> what I do is I, I tend to do them at pubs and breweries or restaurants and I sort of pick a theme and I discuss a lot of, you know, a handful somewhere usually between like eight and and 12 case studies kind of go over these cases that sort of fall within that theme. So I've got one that's all 80s murders. I've got 
one that's all maritime cases. I've got ones that are based on, you know, murders in early Hollywood, stuff like this. And we discuss the case studies in, t- in terms of like what happened in them and sort of my perspective as, as an investigator and, and a criminal behaviorist. And we do Q&A and everybody has slightly too much to drink and asks a bunch of really interesting questions. Um, there are, well, there I, was, are I was 100% uh, sober when I went to the you one were, yes, um, you, you did here. Uh, and it was about crimes in Maryland, including historical crimes, which I had never heard of, which was yeah. a really fantastic. So folk, folks can see like what, what your upcoming events are on your website. Again, can you tell us what that is? Yes, it is speakingcrime.com. Um, and you can always reach me there too. And my consultancy arm, if you are an agency and you are interested in having me come poke around in some of your files, I would love to do it. You can you can contact me on there as well, but also kaylininvestigations.com. Sarah is a brilliant, brilliant um, cold case investigator, brilliant investigator. And I, and I, I've told her, I want to continue to work with her on the innocence work that I do yeah. because every innocence case, as far as I'm concerned, is a cold case. Yep. We just don't, we're not just trying to exonerate somebody. We're trying to find the person who murdered the victim yep. in, in the case that we're looking at. So thank you, Sarah, so much for coming thank on to the show and for your wealth of knowledge. And I'm terrified now. So <laughs> my apologies. Go watch some rom com. That's how I that's how I come out of it is some nice rom com. I'm gonna so. watch some selling sunset and cleanse this out there of There you system. go. Exactly. All right, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. We will be back in two more weeks. We only have a few more of these interview episodes, so don't miss them. And then we'll be back in the fall, back to our narrative stories, and I'm hoping a couple new ones from Sarah as well. <laughs> thank you, Rabia. All right. Thank you guys. Nighty Night is executive produced by Rabia Chaudhry and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lou Bell. It's sound designed and edited by Anton Doty. Original music by Andrew Gerlicker. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast. <laughs>